The following is brought to you in part by MFC Studios. The views of the show's host and guests do not necessarily reflect those of the management, owners, or staff of this radio station. And now, it came from the radio. Again, to a came from the radio, the official of the Big Apple Con. This is your host, Mark Torres, speaking. I am here live on tape at Hofstra for our uh, 21st live show in front of a live studio audience. Special shout out to uh, Kelly Gordon and the East Meadow Public Library for setting this up at the Hofstra University. Um, I am here with our very special guest, author Roland Alnack. Say hi, Roland. Hi, everyone. Yeah, right. So this week we're going to be talking to with and about him, which is awesome because he's here. But first we're going to take it away with the news. The news is brought to you in part by fine folks at the Big Apple Con, of which we are the official radio show of, celebrating over 22 years of comic book stuff and pop culture-ness. For more information, go to www.bigapplecc.com. Uh, their next convention is the Little Big Apple Con, which is going to be December 16th, if I am not mistaken. And also, I want to do a shout-out for our uh, Patreons, of which they are Danny Grillo, award-winning director Jared Burrell, Two Sentence Horror, Millie Portez, Kyle Horn, Dresden Media, and Unjikun. Um, if you guys want to support our radio show, go to www.patreon.com, look us up and came for the radio in the search bar, and for just a dollar a month, you can get your own little shout-out each week. So let's take it away with the news. Um... Uh, from the What Else Hasn't Been Reimagined department, <laughs> Disney has announced that none other than Chip and Dale will have a new animated series on its upcoming streaming service. No. Disney says, Animation continues to be one of the cornerstones of Disney magic. This is a hugely busy and exciting year, and there is no better time to be working in animation, which continues to be at the heart of what we do at Disney. Uh, the series will not revive the Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which was popular in the 90s, but more of a throwback to their original shorts, which made popular in the first place. Uh, as of this recording, no premiere date has been announced. Were you a fan of Chippendale, either oh. Rescue Rangers or the actual old shorts? I know them only by name. I was a big Tom and Jerry fan. Tom and Jerry, that's, that's the enemy. Uh, that's the enemy of Disney. Uh, no. <laughs> Do we have I any uh, have any Chippendale fans in the audience? Uh, yeah, right here. Right. Fans of Chippendale, there we go. Yeah. Tom and Jerry people. Yeah, yeah. Tom, and Tom, Tom and Jerry. All right. There we go. So that's, I think that's, uh, that's what Disney needs to do. Keep on going. I, I'm not a fan of Disney myself, but... I got. I gotta give into it. I did like Chip and Dale back in the day. I never did like uh, Dale. He was always annoying to me. But Chip, could, Chip always, was a Chip was a guy. I always can imagine him like, like blowing off files, like and be like, "Yeah, let's do this. Let's do Chip and Dale." <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably how it happened. Take it out of the archive. Uh, speaking right. of taking stuff out of the archive, uh, from the renewal department, Netflix fans rejoice. The animated series Love, Death, and Robots have been officially renewed for a second season. Oh, right. uh, for those of you who Thanks. don't know, the aforementioned series is currently streaming on Netflix as an anthology series compared to the feature Heavy Metal, with different types of animation being used to tell short stories spanning multiple different genres 
from horror to sci-fi to drama and everything in between. Each episode was about 6 to 17 minutes in length and came from a multitude of writers, directors, and animation studios. Did you uh, see Love, Death, and Robots? Watched it twice. Excellent. Uh, yeah, also familiar with, with Heavy Metal, the movie, and yeah, definitely brought back memories of that. Uh, great presentation. So glad to hear there's going to be a second season. So is that something that you, you more look at as a critical science fiction horror type writer? You're like, you, you, you watch these things and like, well, they could have done this, they could have done that. Uh, for something like that, I didn't really feel that with this because I thought, and one of the reasons I really liked it, each episode was so complete. Uh, there was a real cohesiveness of the artistic vision, the storytelling. So for, for each one I watched, I really couldn't have see or think of anything differently that could have been done without altering it or detracting from what they tried to present. Uh, as someone who's written a lot of short stories, I, I really appreciate the short format. So to pull something together in short format, it, it really has to be a singular vision. And they managed to bring that to the screen with each episode. So realistically, the only thing I would have made it better is if your stories was in the, the Netflix series. Well, that would have been fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see, um, moving on, for you video game fans out there, uh, City of Heroes, if you guys remember, the, multi, the massive multiplaying game, which was famous in the early 2000s, has been brought back, sort of. Um, the game originally was stopped being produced by the company, the company went out of business, but fans of the game have kept the game alive. So there was a quote-unquote secret server that people used to be releasing new content online, which only a certain amount of people were able to play. However, one of the players who've been playing this game since it went off, I believe it's been about eight, nine years since the game stopped being uh, readily available for the mass market, he felt that other people should play the game, and he leaked the server information. Now it's free, and anybody who used to play the game or is a fan of superhero genre game can go online and play the same game with its updates and everything for absolutely nothing. The question in mind is that is this really a legal thing to do, uh, yeah. seeing as how the company went out of business, so they really can't have no one to be sued by. Yeah. But it's, 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 it's there, I've seen it, I am ready to try it because I was a huge City of Heroes fan. And I want to play something for free because before you had to pay for the game and then paid a monthly service or whatever. So now it's completely 100% free. So, I mean, is that something that's... It's, it's a weird gray area, right? Yes, it is. And uh, welcome to the Internet world. Uh, <laughs> you know, copyright, public domain, those lines have become blurred. Uh, certainly in, in a case like this, somebody somewhere holds a copyright for that material. And, you know... As someone who creates content, I certainly wouldn't want to see those original creators not benefit from the popularity of the game. The counter-argument to that is, well, if something is out there and it is massively popular, well, that gives you a platform to present your next thing. So even though you may be profiting, so to speak, directly from something that maybe legally you are entitled to, the smarter move may be to just say, all right, you know what, the cat's out of the hat, let it go, but now use it for your own benefit on your next project. So uh, whether that works or not, of course, is an experiment, but certainly if you, if you have something where you have, let's say, and with online games, I know it's not unusual, you know, half a million people, whatever, looking yeah. at it, well, <coughs> most people who create content, uh, you know, to get 
the attention of half a million people is incredible. So if you have that platform built in, yeah, you, you kind of let that go a little bit. Uh, you see this a lot with fan fiction, when people write fan fiction. Technically, there are copyright issues there. But because people who created the original material, let's say, in this case, it's, it's Star Wars, uh, the fan fiction helps promote the original content as well. So there's certainly a give and take there. And I think as long as everybody walks away from the table happy and with a few dollars in their pocket, let's be honest, people are willing to look over the gray areas. So it's actually interesting you bring this up because there's two things I want to mention quickly. Uh, I think we've mentioned this before on the show. So first off, uh, at least in this case, the game itself is free and no one is making any money off of it. So it yeah. kind of even makes it a more of a weird gray area. Yeah. But um, what you mentioned was uh, something that had happened, I would say, about eight or nine years ago with uh, Star Trek. Okay. So there was a lot of fan films being made for Star Trek. And Paramount, who owns the copyright intellectual property, just go off and make your own, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But then there was one guy decided that he wanted to make a really awesome Star Trek. And he wanted to make a movie. And he got some of the writers from Star Trek. And he got some of the uh, actors from Star Trek. And he did a Kickstarter campaign. And he was selling items and merchandising. And he made a million dollars in his Kickstarter campaign wow. for a non- Paramount Star Trek movie. Yeah. And then Paramount like, hey. They stepped in. Yeah, they're like, hey, you can't, that's, you can't make money off of this for a fan film using right. actors and stuff. Right. And people are going to get confused. So they brought down the law hammer on yeah. him. They, they really, really screwed him over. So much so that they have released rules now for anybody making future fan films that they have to now abide by all these rules. It can't be by a certain time, it can be a certain limit, they can't do uh, episodes. Okay. So now the, the community hates this one guy yeah. for trying to make something really awesome. And apparently the film was better than some of the stuff <laughs> oh. that Paramount had put out in recent years. Well, his mistake <laughs> was that he got too big. You know. But isn't that what you want? Well, again, this is where you have this odd balance. Because when you look at you know, speaking about fan fiction, if you pick any one thing, in this case Star Trek, there's a huge source of fan fiction. But each creator of each piece of fan fiction is basically a small fish in the pond. It's a big pond because of all of them together, but no one is really, in effect, challenging the mass production of, you know, let's say Paramount's media. Um, this individual, obviously, he had something really big going on, so Paramount felt threatened. And at that point, yeah, the, the law is technically on their side. And they, they can bring down the hammer, so to speak. Mm. Um, for the individual creators, all the, the little fish that you would you'd say are in the pond, it's annoying because now they have all these rules that are brought down on them where they, in a way, probably felt, well, I'm kind of under the radar here. Leave me alone. I'm just a little guy or a little gal, you know. So, it, it, again, it becomes a very gray, confusing area. You, know, you also have a phenomenon where uh, something I, I like to say to people is don't ever forget that your gravy is gravy. You know, some people when they, they get an allowance or they're able to slip through with something, they just assume now, well, that moves the line forward and what I'm doing is okay. It's just because no one has really looked at the technicalities or the legalities of what you're doing. Um, that's a dangerous path to go down because at a certain point, as in this case you just described, you're going to reach a, a critical mass where now people say, enough, enough now. Now you're threatening 
our bottom line. And again, in the end, it's it's business, and business is business, and and money talks. So it's 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 kind of um, something actually we've talked about on the show also about the fan entitlement. Uh, yeah. In today's day and age, the fans feel that they are owed something as yes. opposed to just being a business. Like for yourself, you are a writer. So would a fan come up to you like, hey, why did you write it this way? I, I feel that if I pay my money for your book, you should have done it this way. Mm. Well, that's, that's how it happens. Yes, it's, it's natural for people to say, well, why didn't you do it this way or why didn't you do it that way? I, I have to say personally, I never had someone challenge me on it should have been this way instead of the way you did Just it. wait. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I'm sure that day is coming. There's also is that, is that a day you're looking forward to? Because that means you're going to be the next, the next man out there. You're going to be the next exactly. Stephen King. <laughs> well, again, that's where you get into this, you know, this, this double-sided equation here where, wow, it's great to have that kind of attention where, you know, you have people coming out. Um, you know, as an artist, defending, so to speak, what you've created is part of the process. Uh, let's face it, when you do anything creative, it is a public adventure. You want people to see what you've created, read what you've created, whatever the case may be for your, your particular means of expression, and people are going to have opinions. Mm -hmm. It is a very, by nature, it is a very subjective endeavor, and to me that's, that's part of the give and take. Um, you know, at, particularly as an author, you know, you, you see book reviews and they're always some things that you think, well, you know, maybe they didn't quite get what I was trying to say. Uh, I've never felt compelled to correct anything in an interview. There is a certain etiquette when you're dealing with people's opinions. Uh, just in general, as, as a creative, you don't ever want to like, challenge someone on their opinion mm -hmm. because you're really entering into unproductive territory. You have to respect people's opinions, and not everyone is going to like what you did. And if someone comes by and says, you know, I think what you wrote here was, you know, it was really disappointing, you don't want to hear that as a creative, but you, that's part of the territory. Some wow. people are going to love it, some people aren't. <laughs> and, you know, you hope the, the rest of the bell curve is, is happy with it. So. Well, speaking of um, feedback and opinions and, and, and people being upset with products, for you wrestling fans out there, from the Is It Real or Is It Memorex department, uh, former WWE entertainer Chris Jericho has been extremely negative on his new company managing methods by going so far as about saying this about AEW. Chris says, in protest of Kenny Omega, Cody Rhodes, Nick Jackson, and Matt Jackson's foolish decision to give away the next pay-per-view Fighter Fest live to stream away for free, I am pulling out of the event. I refuse to be associated with such shameless pandering. Chris goes on to say, regrettably, and after much careful and difficult consideration, we want to let you know that our band, Fozzie, will not be performing at the entertainment venue uh, due to the incompetence of stupid promoters. We're not confident that we would have, but we need to give fans a quality performance. Of course, in the wrestling world, this can be taken completely as part of the story to draw interest in the event, right. uh, which wouldn't be the first time as WWE stars routinely mix real and fake, known as kayfabe, messages on social media leading up to various pay-per-view events such as uh, the beef between UFC fighter Ronda Rousey and WWE champion Becky Lynch for WrestleMania a few months back. So is he really upset? Is he not upset? Who knows? But I think it's interesting that we was just talking about that sort of thing, and as a person who's in the industry, maybe it is a, a, a fake thing. Are you a wrestling fan? I do watch wrestling. Oh, yeah. uh, to me, go. it is uh, grand theater, <laughs> and um, 
I, I have to admit, I, I'm not a big fan of all the talking. I, I like to watch the actual wrestling, wrestling itself. Because uh, physically, even though it's choreographed and everything else, it is an incredible uh, physical performance. However, the thing I find even more interesting about wrestling is looking at it from a marketing perspective, and this is exactly what you were talking about here. Um, you know, as an author, if you're in creative, marketing is something you have to deal with. And I, I think the real brilliance of the WWE in particular that people overlook is their ability to blur that line between reality and fiction. Uh, you know, you, you have the people who are the wrestlers, they're obviously real, but they have this persona that they've created under the, the tent of wrestling, and then they still have their real personality outside of it. And when you mix in social media, you know, which is this Pandora's box of craziness nowadays, it, it's almost impossible now to differentiate between the real, the not real, the sort of real, and the just doing this for promotion, and no, I am really upset with my promoters, like in this case. So, who knows? Uh, you know, social media in particular, starting a fight really adds fuel to the popularity of these posts. So, you know, you, you have these things where, you know, you have these Twitter wars that people get involved in. Uh, and, you know, people may say, oh, it, it's frivolous, it's this, it's that, the other, but they probably looked at it. And that's the point in the end. <laughs> to get those eyes on, on, yes. on the stuff. Yes. So speaking of uh, people getting eyes on the stuff, um, from Lee, oh, I did this wrong. Huh. I put the news in the wrong order. From the, uh, where is it? Oh, there it is. From the That Was Quick department. Uh, just hours after releasing the live action Swamp Thing on DC oh. streaming service, WB announced its cancellation of the show. Uh, reportedly, the show was already in trouble as the show's original 13 episodes had been cut down to 10 before filming had even been finished on the series. Mm -hmm. oh, as of this recording, there is no official word given as to why the show has been canceled or the reduced episode count. So they made a show. They put it out on their exclusive DC streaming service, and a day, no, not even a day that the show premiered, it got canceled, and they're not going to renew it wow. for the next season. Um, Sounds like the show went into the swamp. <laughs> <laughs> um, so speaking of the DC streaming universe, uh, Warner Brothers, who owns DC Comics and all of its properties, has announced that the DC universe is being reevaluated as Warner Media is focusing on a larger overall streaming platform. For those of you who do not know, the DC Universe streaming service just launched about 10 months ago and has been the only place for DC exclusive shows and programming such as the live-action Teen Titans series as well as the aforementioned already cancelled Swamp Thing. Mm. So once again, just like how Disney wants to have their own streaming service and Warner Bros. wants to have their own streaming service and blah 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 blah, the little guy of the DC Universe, which is specifically just for comic books and movies and whatnot, is already in trouble after only being 10 months Wow. Out of the gate. Wow. It's, it's crazy how this is all going down. And I've been saying this for months, and I'm doing my grassroots movement, that if the Disney streaming service does not make a profit, it will stop what's happening. And that, I think, needs to be done, because we're getting to a point where everybody's going to have their own streaming service. It's going to be their own little monopolies. And then we're going to basically go back to what cable was. Yes. Which was, everybody was complaining about it. Yep. Then everybody had their own cable channel, and they're like, no, let's put them all together on a cable service. So now mm -hmm. we're going to have somebody getting all the streaming services together. It's just, it's too ridiculous. And I think that 
the 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 bar right now is Disney. If they do not make a profit on that Disney streaming service, it will stop this whole trend from happening. Sadly, it's not going to happen. Sadly, everybody's going to get the dream of Disney streaming service, which is which is really heartbreaking to me. Because they, they don't a they don't need the money. That's they don't need the money. And B, it's 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 setting a precedent which is not good for entertainment consumption. I think what you're you're seeing with streaming services to, to back up a little bit. When Netflix first started, it seemed like like a lot of these tech ideas, this crazy goofball thing, you know, who's gonna want to watch something on their phone or their, their computer when they have this giant TV in their living room? Well, uh, boy, isn't hindsight a funny thing? So I think what happens with tech innovations today is they move much faster then people are really able to understand what drove them to begin with and where their future may go. So getting back to Netflix, so Netflix has this explosive growth. They, to their credit, they made a point of saying when we develop our own original content, we want it to be quality. We don't want to push subpar things. So they now, I think, have a billion dollar development budget yeah. for, for programming. But in the beginning, when Netflix was starting, of course, you would need to provide content where you're getting this content. So they were able to woo people to send their content their way so they could say, hey, look, you know, we're going to have this, let's say, and I don't know, in fact, if they did this with DC, but let's say, oh, we're going to have this from, from DC. Right. With the, the quid pro quo being, well, you know, you get people watching it who are already subscribing to our service. Okay, so now you fast forward a few years. Now Netflix is huge. They're making a lot of money. There's a lot of subscribers going in. So the slow catch-up is all these other people who are creating the content say, well, if it worked for Netflix, maybe we'll do our own streaming service. And I've, I like to watch a lot of business news because I feel like, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's the dollars that, that really drive things. Right. Uh, they were doing an analysis on this for a while now, a lot of the economics, the, the economists, and they're saying, you know, you're entering a strange territory here because part of what made Netflix so popular was for that $10 a month, you had this access to a broad palette of media, of different genres. So it draws a lot of people because of the diversity. Now all these people who are delivering that content to Netflix think, well, if Netflix can make a zillion dollars doing it, we'll take our content, split it off, have our own streaming service for $10 a month. But what they're missing is now their content is focused. So if somebody may say, well, if I spend 10 bucks a month on Netflix, but I only watch one DC thing, I'm, I'm cool with that. But they may say, I don't feel it's worthwhile to spend 10 bucks just for a DC thing or a Disney thing or a CBS thing because I'm not watching enough of that content. So the other side of it is for the consumer, in addition, is to say, well, if I like watching something on Netflix, and let's say I like watching, I don't know, NCIS on that streaming service, and I want to watch Swamp Thing if it comes out again <laughs> on DC, and let's say Marvel starts their own streaming thing, now, instead of getting away from my big cable expense, which everybody rebelled against, True. to my $10 Netflix, now it's $10, $10, $10, and, well, Netflix, I think, is up to 12 or yeah, so. Yeah, 12, they just so raise it, yeah. You know it's going to be 15 with all of them. So if you have eight subscription services now for streaming, well, well 
Now you're paying $120 a month. We're you're getting back, back to, to what your cable bill is. That's what I'm saying. We're back to exactly where yeah. we started. And then you're hopping from platform to platform to platform. Sure. In that regard, cable is almost easier because you're just hitting a channel button right. on your TV. You know, so I think there, when, when somebody pioneers a new idea, when it works, now everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you have the introduction, then you have the proliferation, and then you have the weaning. Because now all those new people who are out there, their services are either going to prosper or they're going to fail. And the people who are still in the market look, just trying to decide, well, should I go with my own thing or join in on an established thing? Why did this person fail? And it, usually the answer with new things, innovations, is the market was too crowded now. You didn't have an effective plans to draw people to your platform. Your content was redundant. Your content was not unique enough. So... People who look at that, and then they'll, they'll probably say, well, you know what, I'll, I'll go with one of, like always, there's usually two or three big names that are left in something. I'll go with one of them, and now this actually makes my life easier. I have a very popular platform that will host my material. Okay, I don't see as much back-end as if I did it myself, but I avoid all my front-end expense of developing my own platform and service and getting it out there. So I think what we're seeing is a market in flux. And again, because it's tech, instead of something that takes 10 or 20 years, as we saw with the introduction of cable, where on the internet and streaming, and we're talking about you know two or three years, some of these things, yeah. like you yeah. mentioned DC, it wasn't even a one-year thing. It, it, a ten-month cycle between advent to adios. You know, <laughs> and that's, that's pretty tight. And that's why I believe, just my personal opinion, that the Disney thing is going to be yeah. the... the the make or break of this whole yes. world. Well, Disney has an advantage because they have the rest of Disney. They have the monopoly, so, right? right. If, if, Almost a monopoly. Yeah. Like, realistically, it's just them, um, it's Paramount, Warner Brothers. That's yeah. all that's left. There's nobody else out there. I can see Disney's, of those three, I can see Disney's being the one that really survives. Disney has been very good at controlling their content distribution in terms of keeping it under their umbrella. You know, back in the days of uh, VHS tapes, for people who remember that, the they used the to make Disney a big vault. deal yeah. out of, right, we're opening the vault for six months only. You can buy your copy of Aladdin, and then yeah. we're going to close right. it, and who knows Never when we'll be out it again. again. Yes. So everybody rushes out and they buys it. You know, it's a brilliant marketing scheme because what does it create? The call to action, right? So people feel, i got to get it now. i got to get it now. It's not going to be that I can order off Amazon, you know, next year. I gotta get it now. Uh, but because of that, Disney was able to retain that content under their, their tent and their brand. So they may be able to survive or thrive with their streaming service because you may not be really, genuinely may not be able to get their stuff anywhere else but Disney. And let's face it, Disney has a big market. So, Huge. Yes. Multi-billion dollar franchise yeah. right now. So between all the material they have and the financial backing of the rest of the Disney Corporation, I can see them surviving and, and thriving in that environment. So, final bit of news. Yes. Uh, from Lee, I have yet to see the current season, but this is only about the comic book department. Issue 192 of Walking Dead, available in comic book stores everywhere, features the death of, get ready for spoilers, none other than series lead Rick Grimes. Uh, writer Robert Kirkman says, 
I've been working towards this since I started writing issue one. It doesn't make it any easier, but it's been something I've been getting more and more used to as the years gone down to months and then weeks. I knew it was coming. While this was always Rick's story thus far, as written about in the first issue, that does not mean that he needs to be alive to be a presence in the series. This is a story about a world, not of a man. It's a story about a world profoundly affected by that man, and we'll start seeing by next issue that it is not exclusively Rick's story. Walking a Dead fan? Comic or...? Uh... I, I, I really haven't seen any of the... Uh, <gasps> I read any of the comics. Okay. I, I, I know, sorry. I don't want to cause <laughs> well, any shock. I haven't shock, seen the last, I, season, the last uh, season, season of Walking Dead. I was a little slow coming in to watch the series. Right. Uh, and because my, my time is very limited, so... I have to say, as as much as it bothers me, there there like Dark Mirror, there there's some of the really good things out there. But I see series, and I'm like, oh my god, when am I going to get the time to sit and watch all these episodes? But um, one of my sons had, had started watching it, and you know, I'm sitting at my computer, there, doing my work, and he's got it on the TV behind me, and I kind of got sucked into it. And same thing happened to me with with Game of Thrones. Um, but I, I found Walking Dead very interesting in the beginning. Um, and again, this is my personal opinion, so you know I don't need to no be coming up on my door. <laughs> but uh, I found, and this may just be the way they presented it on TV, so the comic book may be uh, completely different. But I found it started to get repetitive, and um, you know, at a certain point, you know, working in healthcare, I, I had a problem with these zombies still walking <laughs> around because I'm like, well. Whatever happened to them, they may still be able to walk around. But, you know, the bacteria is still going to degrade their flesh. So, really, if there's a zombie apocalypse, you only have to hide for a couple of days, and the zombies is going to turn into puddles of, of goo. So, so that's, that's your expert with the right knowledge right there. That's yeah. like if you're a lawyer and you're watching a law show, it's like, well, that's not how it happened. Exactly. Well, that's why I don't watch any medical dramas, because I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Um, so, so, yeah, so that's it for the news. We're at our halfway point, exactly. So we're going to take our commercial break, and we're going to be right back with the cane from the radio. Me Grimlock having fun on It Came From The Radio. Me Greg Berger also. Hi, you've heard my voice open and close the show. Now we want to hear your voice. If you have a business or a product, you can record a commercial here. We offer 30 and 60 second spots. For more information, contact Mark at MFC underscore studios at hotmail.com. Hey guys, want to impress everyone at your next party? Shock them all with a custom cake. Anything goes. Classic wedding cakes to wild party themes. Follow my social media for weekly videos and photos. We're a Long Island based cake shop. Custom Cakes by Christy Incorporated. K R I S T Y. Call or text anytime. 631 606 8166. Hi, guys. This is Xenia Seberg, who played Zev on the show Lex, and you're listening to It Came from the Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Envoy Comic Distributors, the independent distributor for independent minds. We represent some of the finest small press and self-publishers out there today. To learn more about us and our publishers, search for Envoy Comic Distributors on Facebook. And shop for us online at envoy.storeenvy.com. That's E-N-V-O-Y dot S-T-O-R-E-N-V-Y dot com. 
Have a great day. This is Brian Downey, Stanley Tweedle from the TV series Lex, and you're listening to It Came From Radio. Aloha! Do you like comics? Do you like toys? Do you like cosplay? Do you like collectibles? Well, surf on down to the Long Island Tropicon, Sunday, August 18th at the Melville Marriott. We're going to have over 85 vendors, artists, and panels galore. Bring your kids. Children under 10 are free. Tickets at the door are $15 or buy them early at litropicon.eventbrite.com for our cheap $10 pre-admission. Hi, this is Ellen Dubin, star of Lex, and you're listening to It Came From The Radio. Keep listening. Now, back to our show. And we are back in front of our live studio audience. Yeah. Astra University for our 20 first live show with special thank you to the East Meadows Public Library. Um, this is your host Mark Torres speaking. I'm here with our special guest Roland Almick who's going to be talking about his books and his life and his career. And um, so let's, let's, let's start with the basics. A, why did you decide to become an author? And B, why did you decide to become a self-published author? Okay. Uh, well, let me start with part A. <laughs> Paragraph subsection C. <laughs> I was always compelled to write, so it was just creative urge. When I was in school, growing up as a teenager, uh, really I put a lot of my creative energy into art. So I did a lot of pen and ink, some acrylic, some watercolor. But I was an avid reader, and the first time I thought, you know, I should try writing a story on my own. I wrote my first short story when I was 16, and I was like, boy, this, this is it. This is what I'm doing. So uh, artwork kind of went out the window. And it's been writing, writing, writing. Um, a lot of it, you know, I wanted, as I grew up and went out into the world, I wanted a stable job and a stable income, which in the uh, creative industry is, you know, not exactly what you get. <laughs> so, um, you know, writing was always on the side, and it was always a dream and aspiration to see things in publication. Um, admittedly, I wasn't very uh, disciplined about going about that. I'd write a book, I'd send it out to a few agents, I got a few nibbles along the way, but never really followed up on anything, no real uh, cohesive plan. But um, as I was coming up on my 40th birthday, not because of a age crisis, but more so that I, I just looked back and I said, you know, I've been talking about this writing and publishing thing for, you know, 20-something years now, and I really haven't done anything with it. So I said, enough is enough. Line in the sand have a plan. So what I did, I looked and I thought, yeah, I have all these short stories I've written, I have all these books I've written. So build it like you would any other career. Start small, build up credentials. So I started setting out the short stories. Uh, a couple months later, first short story I published, uh, doing a long story short. From there, I had uh, 14 short stories published before I sent out for my first book. Um, that got published in uh, 2010, which was Remnant, a uh, sci-fi anthology. Uh, that was with a traditional publisher. I went traditional at that time because self-publishing was still something relatively new. Uh, even though I really didn't know anything about marketing yet, I knew there would have to be some type of marketing approach when the book came out. So before I made my decision as to what to do with trying to publish a book, I looked at, well, what, what would I be looking at traditional publish versus self-publish? And it still seemed there was still a pretty high barrier against the self-publishers in, in the marketplace, so I went traditional. And very happy with 
it's my publisher. They, they've been great to me. But, um, you know, by the time my second book came out, which was Oddities and Ennies, Supernatural Horror Paranormal mm -hmm. Collection, uh, that was two years later. And already it was now like 50-50 between how things were working between traditional and self. Um, in prison, my short story collection came out in 2013 that had already, wasn't so much that the balance had shifted, it's just that the market had grown so much. There was so much self-publishing going on that from the business perspective, again, you know, it's the bottom line, uh, a lot of reviewers, uh, marketers, you name it, that, that whole aspect of the publishing industry realized they had to embrace the self-publishing uh, field. It was really unwise in a business sense to continue to ignore that. Um, to this day, I'll, I'll just say, for those who are interested in self-publishing, make sure your stuff is professionally edited, that when your book is done, your cover art is good, your self-published title, its future really depends on it being able to sit next to a traditionally published book and people won't tell the difference. Um, a lot of the things that go into self-publishing, primarily the editing, do have significant expenses with them. Uh, people who are inexperienced, they often look to cut their biggest cost center, which is the editing, and there's no greater disservice you can do to yourself or your written work than to cut there. So I'll just put that out there now. Um, so yeah, the three books were out, and then I started to look and say, you know, well, if I want to do something on my own, what, what would that be like? What would that process entail? And, you know, do, do I want to have myself in a position where I could have really total creative control? And again, this is nothing against my publisher. They've been, you know, they, they basically let me do what I want. And uh, they gave me, I think, the best compliment any author can get from a publisher, which was when I, I pitched them the idea for uh, Prism. They said, look, at this point, you know, anything you want to write, we're, we're, we'll be interested in publishing. So it's like wow, that, that, that's really flattering. But um, you know, I, I thought let me let me try the self-publishing thing. I, I feel like one of the things I learned in publishing is it, it's so diverse. There's so many options to really understand it. You have to try different things. You, know, you, you can't really call yourself a swimmer if you only do one type of stroke, right? So um, I, I looked into self-publishing, and as chance would have it, I went down to the Miami uh, Book Festival one year. I was collecting a few uh, awards for my books from, from reader views. So I was walking around the fair. Uh, I met an editor, Nancy Barnes, from Stories to Tell Books. And we hit it off. And I was like, okay, great. Now I have an editor. She also does book production. So she handles the formatting and, and the cover art and, and all, all of the nitty-gritty part of the book package aside from the writing. So I figured, well, now that I have that in place, now, now I can really look at doing a self-publish. So I've done uh, three self-published titles now, and it's it's not really an idea of I want to do this rather than that in terms of which way I publish. It, it's just really which way the, the wind blows when, and I feel like what I'm doing. Um, I have to say I really enjoy the creative control with doing self-publishing, and I'm doing I'm doing full self-publish. I don't self-publish through a company. I establish my own imprint. It's really all mine. So, um, you know, having that ability to decide and have control of every little part of it, you know, of course, editorial input and, and critique comes into that. But to really look at a book and say, you know, this is exactly how I envision this. And for my latest book, Angela's Arm, 
Uh, you know, it was fun because I started writing it now already having some experience with self-publishing and, you know, all the things I learned along the way about refining my, my narrative style and to, to think that I could sit down and start writing a book already with the finished product in mind and then seeing it basically in that form, that, that's, that's really exciting. And I'm really happy with it as it's as it came out. The weirdest thing that I picked up what you were saying is that even though you're still self-publishing, you have an editor. And you yes. said that's the most important thing. Yes. Now you also said about having control about your product. Yes. So how do you still have control over something if you're letting someone else edit your work and you have final say over what someone else is editing? Okay. Well, th and this is this is a great question because a lot of people uh, they. They wonder about that, you know. Well, if someone's editing my work, then it's really not mine anymore. And I'm, what I always say is, you, you got to look at a good editor. If you have a good editor, a good editor is like a coach. So, what does a coach do with an athlete? The coach never goes out there and throws the touchdown pass, but the coach drills the quarterback and says, "Look, you know, you need to get a little more spiral. Watch your arm motion." So, they refine what you're doing to make you the best at what you're doing. So, a good editor will work with you to bring that out in your writing. That is the objective part of it. Subjectively, an editor, and this is where having uh, a personal connection with your editor can be really critical. Your editor may come back to you and say, you know, this section, the way this character responds to that, you know, it's coming across this way. Is that the way you intended it? Uh, when, you're, when you're writing as an author, there, there is a certain myopic view of your work because you're, you're in it, you're writing it. You know exactly how you wanted it to be on paper. You know how you conceived it in your mind. It is difficult, certainly right after you, you write something, to separate what you saw in your head versus what a reader will infer from your writing. A good editor will pick up on that and they'll be able to say to you, look, I think you were going in this direction, but this is the direction you put into your writing. So you know, you have to decide which way you want to go. Uh, there are also, uh, and for the Digital Now, which was uh, a sci-fi dystopian novel I, I had done, uh, it's a fairly complicated plot. There's a lot of philosophy woven into it. And Nancy, my editor, she was really good at pointing out to me that there were a couple of parts. She said, look, you're going a little too deep here, and you're, you're losing your, your greater plot. You need to step back from that. Maybe this would be good later on. And there were some things where she said to me, you know, you, you really don't need this part here. And, you know, as the author right away, I was like, <laughs> but stepping back and looking at it and trying to be objective, and this is one of the big experiences you learn as an author is to separate your sensitivity from your objectivity looking at your, your work, I realized, you know, she's right. She's right. So... Uh, and that, that's, that's something to learn. Uh, you know, in the early days when I was sending stuff out without a plan, when I would get rejections back, I would take them very personally. And I, I had to realize, like, it's, it's not personal. There is nothing personal in this. This is all objective. And remember, and I'll say this to anybody interested in writing it there, you got to remember, whoever or whatever entity you send your written work to, they've seen everything. So they're looking probably at dozens, you know, there's really no way to judge how many things they're looking at on any given single day. This is their career. This is a passion pursuit for you, but this is their business. So they're looking at it in a way 
that you have to be aware of as the author submitting the material. So my, my rule of thumb is if one person says something about your work, don't take it as that's what you need to do. Uh, I, it was a short story it sent out to a, to a publication and the editor had sent me back <laughs> more critique pages than actual <laughs> written pages of the story. And he basically had ripped the thing to pieces and said my, my narrative focus was all wrong, the point of perspective was all wrong. And when I read it, I was upset. But then the more I looked at it, I thought, he's trying to rewrite my story. He saw my story one way and is telling me to write it that way. That's where an editor oversteps bounds. Because now the editor is imposing what they wanted to see creatively upon you, instead of looking at what you created and the vision that you had and trying to make that better. So that's something you, you, you have to learn. And a lot of these things, you, you only get it through experience. So you have to be patient. Uh, you know, the, the publishing world moves at a very slow pace. <laughs> you send something out, you're waiting weeks or months to, to hear back. But in terms of your experience, you know, writing takes time. And certainly I would say my, my, my writing style, my narrative voice has all evolved as I've gone forward, as it should in a creative thing. You, you should be dynamic and you should be developing and maturing. But um, I've, aside from that one instance, I've never had you know, an editor come back to me and say, oh, you need to change all of this. And you know, maybe that's because it, it didn't need to be done, but I think also because I was working with the right people. Hmm. So uh, when people self-publish, a lot of times if they self-publish with a company, you know, the editorial service you pay for, I, I haven't done it, so maybe I'm off base on this. Uh, and, you know, I'm also president of Long Island Authors Group, so among our members, there's always the discussion of self-published versus traditional publish and handling the editing. Uh, some people have had very good experiences with editors at self-publishing companies. Some people felt it was kind of cold and that they didn't really get subjectively past the objective things that needed to be fixed in it, the subjective parts of it. And I think that's where that personal relationship comes in. And I, I always think, you know, when you look at any successful author, typically in the front of their book, one of the people they will always thank is their editor. And that goes to show you how important that is even for A-list, highly successful authors. So when you're in the creative process, it has been told, because we've had many, many creators on the show, that you always write more than what's actually in the book. Is it different when you're writing a short story that you write? Is it a proportionate amount of stuff that you write as backstory for a short story as to a longer story? Or is it just uh, you write a certain amount and then you cut that down? Yeah, my, my answer to this is going to be based on my experience. And, and I came into writing through short stories. So short stories, you, you have to have a lot of word discipline because it's short format. I've applied that word discipline to my novels. So whenever I write a novel, I'm always looking at this section, the chapter, the arc overall, and I really try to avoid any extraneous material. Um, I also, because time is tight, I rehearse what I'm going to write before I sit down to write it, so my next section is always planned in my head. Sure, when I go back and I do my own edit and revision, there are some things I eliminate, there's some things I expand, that's part of the process, but I never really felt like I sat down with something and felt like, wow, there's 50 pages here that need to go. Um, because I, I do have a general plan of where I'm going to go, and I have that word discipline 
uh, from my short story experience. All right, so we have almost nine, ten minutes left of show, which is crazy. Oh, wow. Because it went like, really fast. Yes. Um, you were nice enough to, you're going to raffle off one of your books. So yes. why don't you quickly tell us about what your book is that we're raffling off. Okay, it's my latest book. It's called Angela's Arm. It's a horror novel. It's also a recent recipient of a National Indie Excellence Award for horror. Uh, it follows Angela, the, the principal character. She's the daughter of an apocalyptic minister in the Midwest, late 1800s. So her family, they live on this commune. They're sort of separated from everything. Angela is different because she's born with one arm that's mm. like a snake and it can detach from her body and has a mind of its own, uh, which is you know pretty weird and fun to play with. But this all ties together in the story because her father sees her as the fulfillment of his doomsday prophecy. As she matures and grows up, she realizes she doesn't necessarily want to go that way. So while there are all these deeper, crazier things going on. At its core, it's a story about a, a father and his daughter and their clash over what her future is going to be. So it was a fun setting. I always wanted to do something in that time period out west. Uh, I always thought these apocalyptic cults are really something psychologically interesting to look at, the way people are controlled. So this story gave me a chance to weave all those things together. So it's an interesting mix. It's, it's a really fun read. Uh, it's a fast-moving book. And, and I'm very proud of it. And, uh, you know, the award is just a little cherry on the cake there. So. so we're going to be wrapping it up. And as an added bonus, I want to give a special shout-out to uh, Frank Patz at Eternal Con. So we're also going to give away two Saturday passes to Eternal Con. Right. In addition to... Angela's arm. So you yes. get a really cool stuff for coming down to the Hofstra University for our live show, thanks yeah. to the East yeah. Public yeah. Library. So we're going to... There you go, we got the sound effect. There we go. So you get to draw out who the winner is. All right. Yeah. I can get my hand in there. There we go. Uh, hang on. Take there you go. Let's see. Who, who, what, is the, what is the number? The number is 544504. Four, four, I got it. Hey! Right. Yeah. Look at that. So you get a book. Wow. And two tickets yes. to a convention. Thank you very much. So yeah. there you go. Hey. See, so if anybody else is listening, you guys can come down and you guys win prizes also. Um, so we got to do social media stuff. So where can people find out more about you and your book? Okay, I'm on Facebook as Roland Aldak, R-O-L-A-N-D-A-L-L-N-A-C-H. That's also my website, RolandAlnack.com. I'm also on Facebook with Long Island Authors Group. It's the authors group on the island here. I am the president, and we go out to different events. Uh, we have a traveling bookstore we've put together to try to spread awareness about the independent author community on the island. So I am out there. I will also be at the Eternal Con, which is coming up. So, uh, yeah, uh, you can find me out there. Website, best place to go. So we have about five minutes to go. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the Long Island Authors Association. How did I come to be? How did you become the president? Was okay. it your baby or did you fight and take over somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no hostile takeover. Uh, the group was founded just over ten years ago by John Cardone. I uh, was also an independent author. And the group came together because John knew a couple of other authors and they thought, boy, we should band together to try to help the cause of, of getting the, their books out there and spreading the word about independent authors and literacy on the island. Uh, I joined the group five years ago. Uh, like every other independent author, I had kind of hit a roadblock in terms of 
finding ways to promote myself and get out in front of the public. Uh, after I joined, I volunteered to help with uh, event planning. So from there, it just grew, and I became a member of the board uh, three years ago. I put together the bookstore for the group. We have a traveling bookstore. We bring the town fairs. That's our most public uh, aspect of the group. But uh, now I'm the president, and things have been going great. We have a, a nice, solid marketing and platform message now. Authors are enthused when they see us. Our membership is exploding. We're, we're over 80 members now. Uh, and it's, it, it's a really fun group. So for people who write and people who are published, uh, required to be published to be part of the group, uh, it, it's, it's a great social gathering to learn a lot from your fellow authors and get your books out there. That's what it's all about. So I'm going to be that guy. Because okay. I have to ask, if you have a group of authors, yes. but technically you're all striving for the same um, outreach, yes. aren't you in competition with each other? And why would you want to hook up with people that you're well, in competition with? It's it strength in numbers. Mm -hmm. You know, for an individual author to go out, let's say, and book a vending table at a fair, all right, that you would have to look at, well, what's my return on investment on this? Am I going to sell enough books to earn that back? Uh, some of these vending spaces, you know, do carry significant expenses with them. But as the group, through our membership dues and the, the economics of being in a group, we can get those spaces. And now we have several authors there. And now you're not just going as one person with one particular writing. We are going with a bookstore with now um, close to 80 titles on display of different genres. We have typically three signing authors, different genres. So the idea is diversity draws interest. So people come in and we often have uh, customers who come to our space who weren't even interested in necessarily buying a book, but we start talking to them and they talk to our authors and they love the local aspect of it and books move and that's great. So you're basically like your own 3D streaming service. Effectively, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in practical terms, that's, that's pretty much what we're doing. Um, because a lot of local outreach has to be done face-to-face, -face. We, we focus on that. So we, we have a website for our group. It's longislandauthorsgroup.org. So people are interested, they can come in and check out our authors. Uh, we do go around to the town fairs. Uh, so a lot of people have probably seen us at, at various events we've been to. But we, we are focusing a lot on the you know real-world, face-to-face, uh, direct approach because it, it is really the best way to let people know that we are local, we are in your community, and uh, one of our little slogans is, you know, your neighbors, your local authors. Uh, that, that really seems to resonate with people. So we're almost out of time already. Yeah, So flew by. So A, we got to have you back because you are Happy to be back. A, a great guest. Thank you. And, oh, nice. Um, I just want to say uh, final thought time. So do you have any final thoughts you want to mention with uh, two minutes left? Final uh, thoughts? I would say keep your mind open, people. Uh, you know, when you see a new book, maybe a graphic novel, TV show, whatever it is, yeah. if it's not necessarily something you think you might be interested in, at least give it a try. Um, you know, as, as a creative, I'm an author, you know, whether it's painting, whatever it may be, uh, always try to keep an open mind because you never know what you may come across that you say, wow, this, this is like my thing that I'm really interested in. So check things out.
give so, it a try. My final thought is, A, thank you for coming. Uh, I've got to have you back because you Absolutely. are a great guest. Thank you. And you have so much stuff that we didn't even, we just barely scratched the surface of yeah. all the stuff yeah. that you have. Give it another two hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, so much continued success. We'll have you on Thank as you. soon as possible. And, and, and if people want, who are local in New York, Long Island, make sure you contact Roland yes. and get published and get onto the uh, group because you, I've actually been to one of your uh, events and it's yes. really cool. You have a lot of stuff there. That's stuff that you may not be interested in, but if you go to one thing, you'll see things that you did not know yes. you were aware of. Exactly. So uh, that about does it for this week on It Came From The Radio. Join us right here and every week on this radio station. If you miss any part of this show, go to our website, www.itcamefromtheradio.com. Listen to the archives will be up in a week or so. And if you guys are interested in coming down to our next live show, which will be on July the 10th at um, Hofstra University, the Joseph Shapiro Hall, room 302. Uh, we will have uh, Patrick Madden, who is the creator of the Tropic Con, and he'll be raffling off free tickets to his show. And then on the August 14th, we're going to have cosplayer Rizuki, and she'll be giving away most likely prints of herself. So if you guys are interested, come down. I want to thank the live studio audience for being here. Yeah, um, yeah, so right. Make sure you check us out online. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or such places as Overcast, Pocket Cast, iHeart, Google Play, iTunes, Breaker, or Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, Podbean, Player FM, Soundcast, Acast, Castbox, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Podmus. Whew, thank you very much, and we will see you all uh, next week. All right. Yeah. You've been listening to It Came From The Radio with Mark Torres. The views of the show's hosts and guests did not necessarily reflect that of the management, owners, or staff of the station. We now return you to your earthly scheduled broadcast.